So, what exactly do we talk about on Sporadicast? How to make the best margarita. Cocksuckers? Sure, we could talk about all of that. And more! Sporadicast! But Jason, when can people find Sporadicast wherever they get their podcasts or on our website, rabbitholepodcast.com? That's the beauty. Sporadically. I don't get it. If you're driving a car or some kind of motor vehicle, I want you to ignore what I'm about to say and just do this exercise another time. Everyone else listening to this, close your eyes. I want you to search the very back of your mind and unlock a core memory that you may not realize you have locked away in there. Ready? When was the first time you've seen a nude or sex scene in a movie? Now, I don't mean you found your grandfather's porn stash and put a tape in. I mean a Hollywood movie that had a sex scene. Do you remember what your first sex scene was? I remember my first. I was eight or nine years old, and my mom wanted to watch the movie Stripes. Now, if you've never seen the movie Stripes, I recommend it. It's a great Bill Murray comedy about two losers who join the army. They find another group of losers, overcome their loser status, and get sent to a war zone against all odds. It's, it's almost like a comedic take on Full Metal Jacket, now that I think about it. Anyway, Stripes cult star John Larroquette, he of Dan Fielding of Night Court fame, has one of the villains of the movie. Now, his introduction to the movie has him in his office peeking out of his window with binoculars watching women shower. And obviously, they were naked, and this was my introduction to female nudity in movies. Now, to my mom's credit, she tried to get me to look away, but by the time she thought to say it and shield my eyes, the women were off the screen. And for whatever reason, she got mad at me for looking, but this might have just been to cover up the awkwardness of the whole situation. Now, the next movie I've seen with gratuitous nudity was Porky's. I was 9 or 10 years old. My mom wasn't home, but her boyfriend at the time was forced to babysit me, and he really needed to watch Porky's right then and there. And so the movie is happening, and the boyfriend is just like, eh, this kid's a boy, he should be interested in tits anyway, and let me continue watching the movie. And dare I say, as a 10-year-old, it was my most favorite movie of all time. Eventually, I'd be left home alone a lot and would just pop in random movies and at times sex scenes or nude scenes would pop up. And of course, as a prebubescent uh, boy, I enjoyed them. Now, when booze popped up in Under Siege, that was a present surprise. Which takes me to my teenage years and now I have the awkward encounters of my parents walking in while a sex scene is happening. And just like the current meme suggests, 99% of the movie is normal, but when boobs and or sex start happening, that's when your mom or dad suddenly needs to walk through the living room. Bonus points if it's loud moaning happening at the same time. Which leads me to why I'm even bringing this up now. Today's film. Now today's film only has two sex scenes. They're not very long, and you only see boobs really quickly in one of them. But... And true story, while I was watching this on VHS, when it came out on VHS, at my dad's house, he literally walked into the living room during the first sex scene, shook his head and left. Then during the second sex scene, which happens about an hour later, or so I'm approximating, he walked in again. I looked up to the sky and I was like, really? But I mean, what do you do during that situation? Like, acknowledge it? Yes, there's a sex scene here, but this isn't a porno. I promise. This was the only time this happened, okay? Or do you just don't say anything and hope your parents just silently judge you for watching such filth? Now, what's funny is considering the ending of this film, sex and boobs is the least of anyone's worries. Fargo came out on March 8, 1996, was budgeted for $7 million, and it made back $60 million, because it's a fucking Coen Brothers movie. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
starring Frances McDormand in easily one of her best roles of all time has Marge Gunderson. Uh, William H. Macy has Jerry Lundegaard. Uh, another excellent performance by him, by the way. Uh, Steve Buscemi has Carl. And I feel like uh, this role defined Buscemi as an actor. Peter Stormare has Grunsrud. And I have to say, Stormare is easily one of my favorite actors. He is great in anything he does. Now, my favorite role of his has Satan in Constantine. Easily the best portrayal of Satan in a film. Come fight me. And, of course, written by the Coen brothers, Ethan and Joel, with Joel directing. Now, you're all wondering, why Fargo? Why not The Big Lebowski? That's the most 90s Coen brothers movie on the face of the planet. And to you, I say, Google The Big Lebowski podcast episodes, tell me how many hits you get, and then do the same for Fargo. Now, do I think Fargo is better than Big Lebowski? Debatable. And my guest may have something to say about that. I know the Coens had other movies in the 90s besides these two. You know, Miller's Crossing, Barton's Fink, The Hutsucker Proxy. Wait, they did The Hutsucker Proxy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they did, don't you know? And sort of a bucket, that movie there is on the list. Oh, jeez. Today on That's the Bomb, yo, I welcome a podcast host, Justin Gott, as we tell you why Fargo is a hella rad movie from the 90s. Mr. Mora? Yeah? Officer Olsen? Yeah, righto. Well, saw him tending bar down there at Eklund and Swedland's last Tuesday, and this little guy's drinking, and he says, so where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman action, what do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, but I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, yeah, but this ain't that kind of place. Uh-huh. He says, oh, so I get it. So you think I'm some kind of jerk for asking, only you don't use the word jerk. I understand. Then he calls me a jerk, says, last guy thought he's a jerk is dead now. So I don't say nothing. He says, what do you think about that? And I says, well, that don't sound like too good a deal for him then. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah, he says, yeah, that guy's dead, and I don't mean of old age. And then he says, geez, I'm going crazy out there at the lake. White Bear Lake? Yeah, well, at Eklund and Swedland, that's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Oh, sure. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it, but then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to That's the Bomb, yo, with 90 hella rad movies from the 90s. I am your host, Jason Soto. My guest today was the co-host of uh, the Rambling Ramblers podcast, which you can find older episodes of at ramblingramblers.com. Please welcome Justin Gott. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. Um, First and foremost... uh. You were highly recommended to me when I was looking to do Fargo. Um, apparently, you're that's a, some that's an honor. <laughs> you're some kind of Fargo super fan. Apparently, <laughs> I, I mean, I love it. It's 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 my favorite Coen Brothers movie. It's, okay, okay. I just checked my letterbox to confirm it is my 14th favorite movie. Period. Oh, oh Jesus. Okay, I have recorded an episode on another podcast i have done a cohen's rankings on the ram the gramblers and it was number one obviously for myself and my co-host okay and i think that and we'll get into it but i think that it is one of the best examples of the juxtaposition between good and bad and or good and evil, if for for lack of a better word. <laughs> and, okay, okay. And I think that the performance by Francis McDormand in particular is 
probably a top three or four favorite ever for me. I think it is it's just wonderful. And so, yes, any chance that I get or am asked, <laughs> I am I'm happy to discuss the the wonderful thing that is Fargo. The 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 little movie that could. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so. Um... I've seen a lot of Coen Brothers films, obviously. Um, I've seen a lot of their 80s stuff, you know, Raising Arizona, um, stuff like that. And then, of course, I've seen the 90s stuff, Miller's Crossing. Uh, Tonally, how do you think this fits in their filmography? It's definitely of that kind of... It's kind of the OG Coen still. Uh, you know, it's their sixth movie, and, and you mentioned a couple of the other ones that they'd already done before. Mm-hmm. You know, even Blood Simple before it as well, which yeah. there's a couple references, I think, within Fargo. Some of the driving scenes, I think, kind of call back a little bit and and kind of just what they do in general. They they have some tendencies, if you will, as, as directors, for sure. But I, I think it's not quite the same filmmaking. It's not quite the same thing that they do later on and like say no country or true grit or you know any kind of any of those sorts of movies but i think what they do here is them at their best and so i think that it kind of it hits all the right marks the screenplay which did win an oscar and they're casting across the board obviously francis won an oscar mm-hmm. i you know i think now as somebody who's never seen the english patient i can't necessarily <laughs> say it should have or shouldn't have won. <clears throat> Fargo should have won Best Picture. Like, I, like what are we doing here? So, yeah. it is what it is. What was nominated for Best Picture when, in 1996? Um, do you know off the top of your head? I'm looking it up now, but yeah, I did just look it up. But I know English Patient. I think it was Jerry Maguire was one of them. Oh wow! Okay, there's <laughs> some heavy hitters here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, you know what? This is a tough choice because, like, what would you what what would you have picked? Would you literally have picked Fargo to be the actual best picture winner of that year? I mean, I think it's one of those things where you know. Well, I mean, yes, obviously, I've already spoken my preference for it, but and again, haven't seen English Patient because it never felt like a movie that you had to see. But I think that if like you kind of look back through the course of movies, and the Coens are really important since you know, the mid eighties, right. They've been right. making movies for 35 years and they're, so they're really important in Hollywood. And if you really break it down, like what are the most important Coen brothers movies, wherever it's ranked for you, I don't know a whole lot of people who would put it below a top three. Like, I, I think it's gotta be at least in someone's top three of Coen brothers movies. I just don't know how, not sure how you wouldn't. And either. I'm so my point is, it's a like an essential movie from essential directors over the last 35 years. I haven't, have you, when's the last English, what's the English, what's the last English patient conversation you had? And this None. is <laughs> what, and this is inspired what four seasons of a television show that right, are right, exactly. almost on the same level as the movie. Cause it's so great too. And so anyway, I think that, you know, obviously you can't go retroactive and I, you know, should we be doing best picture 10 years after the fact? Maybe, you know, then movies like social network and get out would probably have their, you know, just awards, but <laughs> either way, I, I think that, I think this is, uh, I think this is a, as close to as good as you can get in terms of a movie. Um, now Coen brothers, you know, they don't do a lot of comedies. They did, you know, raising Arizona, obviously that's a comedy and they're known for like, they're kind of, I don't say dark might be too far, but like kind of gritty thrillers that, you know, can get really, you know, bloody at times. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that Fargo is a good blend of both comedy and like dark tones overall? Yeah, it's not as funny uh, as, you know, some of their more straight comedies. Definitely. Um, I know that, you know, I'm actually not the biggest Raising Arizona fan, but I know that a lot of people are and that's and that is just straight comedy with like the crime nature to it right right i think again i think this kind of just is them hitting at every level that they're like the best of every level that they've ever tried to do whether it's the drama stuff whether it's the comedy stuff whether it's the crime stuff just their kind of i mean their go-to is the you know people doing things because they're kind of at their wits end 
And so desperate people making desperate decisions and failing at them. And I think it's kind of the best version of that as well. And you can see that through, you know, almost every single one of their movies. Mm -hmm. But again, I think for me, what is kind of what holds it all together is Frances McDormand and just not even her performance, but just who Marge Gunderson is. And there's so many scenes that kind of just show just how good of a person she is. And so kind of for the Coens to have her win air quotes in the end is kind of what sets it apart for me. It, it, It gives it a hope that a lot of their darkness sometimes doesn't leave room for. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think kind of what really makes this, you know, stand out. Okay. Yeah. 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 I agree. Uh, I, I think it's a perfect blend. I think, mm-hmm. I think if this movie had maybe too much comedy or too much dark stuff, I don't think it would work. And right. I think somehow they found a way to, to kind of blend it just perfectly. Um, I I thought it was funny, like mainly just like the characters' reactions to things, because it would just simply just be, oh yeah, like oh oh geez, oh gee. Uh, I can't speak from where you're from, but I live in the Midwest. Oh, I, uh, I I'm from Chicago. I live in Indianapolis, um, so I am very familiar with that accent. With that, with that whole oh oh god oh gosh oh geez oh son of a buck don't you know like I'm <laughs> I'm familiar with that so to me it hit home a little bit, okay. um, but the fact that it's like you know you know Marge is being presented with three homicides that happen on the side of a highway and her whole reaction is oh god oh geez, <laughs> <laughs> like there's just something inherently funny about that like i don't know if you agree or well and she's the chief of police too so clearly she's seen a thing or two in her time you know uh no i'm so i'm from i'm a southern california kid okay i I live in washington state now but you know the accent is a little foreign to me for sure okay okay yeah yeah I, i do wonder sometimes like how legitimate it is like is that true like do all people from north dakota sound exactly like that Maybe not everybody, but a good percentage of people do. Um, That's wild. Um, but yeah, uh, have you ever met the Vern? I think I have. Yes. Yeah, that he, sounds familiar. Yeah, he's got he's got a pretty good Minnesotan accent, and it's very <laughs> similar to the ones in Fargo. Um, uh, get him to react to three homicides. He'd probably be like, "Oh, jeez." <laughs> <laughs> um. Is Marge Gunderson the smartest character in this movie? I think unequivocally. I, I'm trying. I'm basically trying to think if there's anybody else who does anything. Because I feel like everyone else are morons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I, my favorite is, and this just shows her goodness again. Is then when she's driving with the one police officer. And he's talking about the dealer plates and he says the DLR and he's DLR, like, yeah. you know, we got the thing out for looking for DLR. And she's like, you know, I don't think I quite agree with your police that work there, Lou, you know? And yeah. even in her, like, I mean, that's her version of chastising, I guess. Like, yeah, it just, it's, it's such a sweet <laughs> way of doing things, but she does figure everything out. Like she, it takes her, yeah. it takes experiences for her to to you know to figure out Jerry's involvement and to kind of get along there because she doesn't pick up on his you know not so innocence at first and <laughs> right. part of that I think I think that's <clears throat> part of why it's set where it's set is because it's this very innocent seeming world yeah and it's this darkness that kind of flooded in through Jerry's bad decisions <laughs> and, and you know and and from that that's where she's able to kind of figure everything out and, and, you know, whether it's, you know, and there's one scene we can talk about later, but the scene with Mike, you know, where, you know, that's where a lot of people would say like that scene needs to be cut and what's it there for. And, you know, I've, the best I've heard it described and and what I really believe is that it's there to allow Marge to understand how good seeming people can actually be evil. Mm -hmm. And because once she finds out that he doesn't, actually have a wife or that that wife was never died or whatever she's like oh oh <laughs> pe- people can really try and 
you know, <clears throat> pull the wool over my eyes just to try to get ahead. And nah, yeah. kind of, that's what leads her back to Jerry. But yeah, I, I think she's there. I definitely think she's there. I'm glad that scene with uh, Mike is there because it, it does build on, I think, her character. Because um, we, we learn that she's very sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, we learn she's very devoted to her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, very, by the way, uh, great performance, understated performance um, um, by John Little Lynch. John, John, John Carol Lynch. Carol Lynch, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually really glad you brought him up because I wrote his name down. I wanted to throw this at you because mm-hmm. you're asking me questions that I'm not prepared for. So I'm going to throw this <laughs> one at you. It's what I do. <laughs> is, is there an actor who's had a more polar opposite performance in terms of oh. a character that is pure good versus pure evil? Because obviously he's the Zodiac killer. Or he's not so obvious. But, <laughs> so you have him as Norm, the sweetest man that's ever lived. And potentially the Zodiac Killer, same actor. Yeah. Is yeah. there another actor you can think of that's played both sides of the coin like that? That's a good question. That is a really good question. Yeah. Um. Because I couldn't come up with any off the top of my head. When no. I was thinking about it. Nobody really can do that. I feel like like you, you, most actors get like typecast has a certain type of actor like. You know, they want, like, an evil guy, so they're going to get, like, somebody who's known to play, like, villains or, you know, whatever. Or they want someone who just looks very wholesome and nice and can play a hero or whatever. I cannot think of an actor who could easily do both and do both well. Right. I would say that I think the the ones that, like, do jump to mind would be ones that played, like, massive villains. Like, maybe, like, your Heath Ledger who played the Joker and then kind of go into the other side and then maybe something like his 10 things I hate about you character or yeah, you know, yeah. something like that. Or Anthony Hopkins. That would probably be close. Yeah. You know, playing Hannibal. And then like, if you wanted to say like, what was his last movie? The Armageddon time where he's just a friendly old grandfather <laughs> or whatever, you know, it's like, okay, yeah. well that, that there's that. But I guess like for me, like he, he looks the same. He's not like the outright villain of a movie in that sense. He's just kind of this guy. And I just, Norm and Marge together are just it's it's this little like sweet bubble that they're a great couple. Look, yeah. Yeah. Elite they're a very movie great couple. couple. Yeah, exactly. Like like literally couple goals. Yeah. Um they're doing all right. They are, yeah, yeah. But um uh I forgot what I was saying before that, but uh I I think the performances from everybody in this is like top notch. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, Frances Frances McDormand definitely earned that Oscar. Um, she did a great job with this role. Um, and but like William H Macy, I thought like he didn't you know he didn't do too bad himself either in this role. <laughs> no. um, and the fact that he like they're literally I I asked you this earlier, but there is not a smart person in this movie. Like, like it's, Marge it's is the thing, only though. person, and you know, you know, no offense to Norm. Norm's, you know, he's a sweet he's guy. He's a sweet guy. He likes his worms. He likes to paint. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's a he's, simple man. He's a simple guy, but you know, uh, everyone else are just complete fucking morons. And Jerry's dumbass is the one that sets like all of this into motion. Yep. Yep. Um, but uh. Yeah, not a smart person. <laughs> this movie. No. I was rewatching this the other day, and I was like, "There is not, you know, a good decision made mm-hmm. <laughs> anywhere in this movie." Like everybody, <laughs> everybody's constantly making wrong decisions. Yeah, absolutely. like all the time. Um, down to I think, like, oh, go ahead. Okay. I was gonna say, I think the other thing about Macy's performance that that I just kind of loved this most recent time <clears throat> watching it was seeing how much he he hates himself through the whole thing. Oh yeah. There's there's a moment. Uh, it's when he's haggling with the one couple who come in and the whole true coat thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he leaves and he comes back <laughs> and when the guy is like, you know, you're, you know, he has trouble saying the word because they're all so sweet. He's like, you're a fucking liar. You yeah. Know? He, <laughs> this self disgust that is just on his, his face, face yeah. as he knows just what a piece of garbage he is because he has like, to sell that true coat thing. That that's a like that performance is. That's special. Like that, I think if, I mean, it, to me, it's an award worthy performance. He just went up against Cuba Gooding Jr. Who is 
electric and Jerry Maguire. And so you, it's kind of hard to beat that. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, it's hard for me to see Macy and other things and not see Jerry Lundegaard. Like, Jerry, Lundegaard. <laughs> Jerry is his kind of, that's the performance that sticks with me. You know, okay. he's great, great in boogie nights. He's been great in countless other things. Mm-hmm. But for me, like I see William H. Macy and I, and I see Jerry. Yeah, absolutely. You can't help but think about friggin' Jerry and the car deal and and then what the heck the, you mean? And then like you almost feel like you don't want to feel sorry for him because he's an idiot, but then like you kind of feel bad because his father-in-law is mm-hmm. the biggest asshole, mm-hmm. and it's like and it's not even like towards Jerry always. You know he you know the father-in-law Wade. Uh, he he gets on you know the uh, Jean his daughter William H Macy's wife uh, about her mothering because um, she mm-hmm. lets the kid go to McDonald's after dinner um, not even Mac- finish dinner I, McDonald's I McDonald's, McDonald's. Yeah. you're right it is it's <laughs> McDonald's and um, and then he's just always hard on Jerry um, Jerry's always he needs money he needs to borrow money the dad father in law is rich but he won't just give him money. Uh, he comes up with a scheme to sell them this lot, uh, but they won't pay him for the lot. They would give him a finder's fee, so that pisses, mm-hmm. so that sets everything else off. Wade is just like probably like the most underrated villain in a movie because like he's just kind of, <laughs> you know, he he's not like necessarily doing anything really bad, but he he was the reason why things also happened because if he would have just gave Jerry the money. Jerry wouldn't have had to have done everything that he did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. Let me, let me play devil's advocate for Wade here for a second. Okay, sure, right? sure, 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 sure. So he's got a daughter, presumably the only one. We don't hear of any siblings of any kind. No. So his daughter, who he spends a lot of time with, probably married this guy young, was maybe one of the first boyfriends she had in small town, and let's just stick with this guy. Yep, yep. He has to give him a job at his car lot because that's his car lot that Mm -hmm. Jerry is now the manager of. Yep. And he's, you know, so he's a sales manager. So it means he's had some success selling. Clearly, he's a liar when he's selling. And Mm -hmm. so he's kind of swindled his way up to this point already. And, you know, we kind of find out he's been doing some shady stuff with cars and, you know, whatever he's doing to try and get some side money and stuff. And so I think he just sees his son-in-law as a schmuck <laughs> and, you know, and it's just kind of like, okay, uh, you know, cause he even says, you know, this would be a really good deal for Gene and Scotty. And yes. Wade says, Gene and Scotty never have to worry. Right. Yes. The idea being your ass could be gone mm-hmm. and Gene and Scotty are taken care of by me. Yeah. You're here, but, you're just you're just some guy it doesn't matter how long you're taking up space you're taking up space doesn't matter (laughs) i gave you the thing i gave you when you got the job at the car lot yeah so and honestly like his laugh i think is really funny when he's just like wait so you want us to give you money to go do this lot thing so then you make all the money why wouldn't i just put the money in and i get like that actually is logical? No, like, I, you know. I'm not saying he's not logical. He, <laughs> everything Wade did into him and in some way made sense. It was just like it was just like I don't know. He was just really callous about it. Like he he oh, seemed very. like he oh. took glee in making Jerry's life miserable. Yes. Um. And you know, and and then when it got to the um. And if anyone's listening to this, they've never seen Fargo. A, do that now. But B, the center, the linchpin of this film is William H. Macy's character, Jerry, uh, rigs a kidnapping for his wife. So the very rich father-in-law will pay the ransom, but the ransom's actually going to Jerry because he made a really bad deal, uh, and he needs to pay that off. And so... um, and so he 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 sets Jerry sets all this into motion. So well, um, the other part of that, just to add, is that he tells the guys he hires to do it. 
he tells them that it's going to be for eighty thousand dollars. Eighty thousand, but he's getting and he's going to ask for a million. He's going to ask for a million. So he's pocketing nine hundred and twenty thousand dollars. That's why he has to be involved in every step of every the process. Step. But yeah. then when he tells Wade, oh, you know, Gene got kidnapped, um, and the you know the kidnappers they want ransom. They only want to deal with me. If I call the cops, if I tell anybody else, they're going to kill Gene. So they got to tell me. Wade inserts himself. <laughs> like, he's like, I'll be damned if, you know, mm-hmm. anyone else is going to handle my money. And you could just see the pure frustration in William H. Macy's, like, face yeah. when he when he hears that Wade is going to go make the money drop. That mm-hmm. that was some of the most brilliant acting from William H. Macy when he found out that Wade was going to go drop the money off. And he was just all pissed. Anytime Jerry gets pissed in this movie is just, like, top-notch. Like, yeah. Great acting. The one that stands out to me is when he uh, leaves their meeting where mm. Wade kind of basically says, uh, you know, I'm not giving you the money and that's it. Mm-hmm. And then he goes and he scrapes off the, the ice or whatever and kind of kicks a fit and throws it. And <laughs> I, I love that they held the extra two seconds for him to bend over and pick it back yeah. up and come back up because it showed just his both his practicality and the fact that he's, I mean, also kind of a simple person, but like you're not just going to throw a tool like that away and then never like they wanted to show him being like, actually I need this. Let me go I back and this. get it. You know? No, exactly. Yeah. You're going to throw your fit and throw your toys, but you got to go pick them back up. It's little um, character <clears throat> things like that. that yeah. I, again, it's just, it kind of chips away at, at, you know, again, kind of calling it a perfect movie in the sense that like every little detail is there mm-hmm. and it's accounted for. And they thought about when they were, you know, setting everything up and whether it's, you know, all those things we're just talking about with Jerry or every little thing about Buscemi, like literally every character you can go down the line, they have little quirks that stand out that make you go like, I'm thinking about that person. Yeah, I want to, I do now want to move on to Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare because yes. um, I think these are two of my favorite characters. Mm-hmm. Um, Their dynamic together, there's just something about them too. Because Peter Stormare, he's just quiet. He probably mm-hmm. has, like, maybe all of 50 lines of that in the movie. Oh, I was going to go, like, five. <laughs> like, I, uh, I mean, he yeah. talks a, a little bit, like, in the car, like, after he shoots the, the, the cop. Yeah. He does say a little bit more things. But then overall, yeah, he's just this yeah. quiet yeah. Uh, guy who's just kind of there. And then you got Steve Buscemi. Uh, has Carl, who's just talking his mouth off. He's just constantly talking, talk, 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 talk. And then he even has the thing where he just talks about how he's going to stay quiet. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to talk no more. We'll see how you like it if I don't say anything anymore. Like, that that whole part. Uh, just them two, the dynamic between them two was just, like, brilliant. Um, And it's, it's sort of a shame that neither of them really got anything for this either because... um. These were like Steve Buscemi. I know people think of like maybe Reservoir Dogs, uh, but I kind of see, and maybe Donnie and you know uh, Big mm-hmm. Lebowski. Sure. Which, by the way, that character was only created because someone said that he talked too damn much <laughs> in Fargo. <laughs> so they made Donnie, and then the phrase "shut the fuck up, Donnie" <laughs> was created. Um, but I think of Fargo. I really do think of Fargo when I think about Steve Buscemi. I think this is one of his iconic roles. Um, and uh, I, I just like his performance in this movie. I don't know if, what's your agreement on that about Steve Buscemi's, um, you know, overall acting. <laughs> yeah, his his whole his whole life filmography. Mm-hmm. No, I, I do think that this is one of his best performances. And, you know, for that, he ends up in a wood chipper. So congrats to him <laughs> He gets uh-huh. iconic. He get he's technically in the most iconic scene in the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, him and Stromer, I think, I mean, anytime you can have two bad guys who are polar opposites who kind of rely on each other, you know, I don't even know what Stormare's motivation is because he doesn't really talk, right? No. It's it and it just seems like, you know. Carl, you know, Buscemi's character, like he's just, obviously he's just trying to get money and that's all he cares about and, you know, what he's trying to do. And 
it's almost a shame that he doesn't get he that he's not on the receiving end of Marge's speech at the end. Yeah, because I feel like you know he was actually the one that I felt needed to hear that. Whereas, yeah, you know, uh, you know, Stormare's character. I don't really know what his motivation was other than stay out of trouble because at every step, just covering, just covering his ass. That's all he wanted to just cover his ass. When, when, when when Carl couldn't take care of the cop, he, you know, Stormare just jumped in, shot him. And then when the, uh, the other couple driving down the highway was coming, he took control of the car and immediately drove after, after, after them. You know, with um, Stormare, just since we're talking about him, it's yeah, yeah. funny when uh, when Marge shoots him and he ends up kind of down and his head goes in the snow and he's kind of like the way he's yeah. kind of moving his head. <clears throat> it looks identical to a move he does, what, a year or two later when the compies are getting him in the Lost World and he's <laughs> going down into the river. Oh. He almost has that same exact like. Oh, really? OK. Fall, same exact like. <clears throat> It just it, I it stood out to me this time because, you know, he's obviously kind of played this kind of dope type person before, and so I know you mentioned Constantine. I actually cannot remember that movie all that well, so I need to revisit. It's it's actually not that bad. People give it a lot of shit for some reason. Yeah. It's actually not that bad. I, um, I had I I did want to. You said to fight you. Uh, <laughs> I, Al Pacino in the, the Devil's be- Advocate better yeah. than Al Pacino. I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. I, I'm just go revisit there... Constantine and right. go watch Peter Stormare's portrayal of Satan. Okay. Better, uh, yes, I am saying better than Al Pacino. I will, okay. I will fight anybody. You keep saying the fight thing, <laughs> and I will loudly proclaim. I'm from Chicago. I gotta say, I gotta mm-hmm. be. I gotta be behind my convictions. All right, <laughs> I will loudly say. <laughs> In a public setting. Oh, you. Um, <laughs> um, do you think there is an underrated performance in this? And not even by the main characters. You can go side character, a person who shows up in one scene. Like, do you think there's like a like an actor or actress who, like, damn, that was a good job in that role, and they don't get enough credit for that? <clears throat> you know, I gotta say it would probably be Jerry's wife. And I don't even know who, she, what her name is, if I've ever seen her in anything else before. It almost feels like she's a local that they pulled off the street because she feels as stereotypical little mid Midwestern wife, little housewife type person ever. Like she's just, you know, I think similarly to like all of those characters, just the sweetness in her voice and the way that she just assumes the best out of everybody. But I would, I think that just that one dinner scene, you know, Jerry comes in and he says, you know, oh, is he, you know, staying for dinner? And she's like, oh, well, I don't know. And she's like, Dad, are you staying for dinner? <laughs> you know, like, you know, like I don't know, just her interactions and everything. And of course, you know, the worst happens to her. But yeah, that that is also a through line through a lot of the Coen Brothers movies is that sometimes the most innocent are those who are affected by violence. Um, you know, and, and that I think is is sadly in a in a necessary evil for for her character to go through so okay uh say so i see you brought her up so her name is uh kristen uh i don't know if i'm saying this right because it's got an umlaut in it uh radude okay um she was born you'll never guess where she was born not north dakota fargo north dakota oh see, she was literally born um but she has a very small filmography. She was in a movie before Fargo called A Psychic Mom, which does not have an entry, and I wish it did, because I want to know what the hell that is. And then after Fargo, she was in Pleasantville. Mm. Um, has a person named Mary. I don't remember Pleasantville enough to recall a character named Mary. You only um, remember one scene from Pleasant. Oh, 100%. I remember. The, yep, me and you. We're in the same <laughs> wavelength. Uh, but then other than that, she was not in a whole lot. Um, she, she might, I mean, she might have been just somebody who they they were literally looking for somebody with that accent. Yeah, who, they, who they were. sounded natural. Casting in Fargo, and she fit the part. Yeah. And you know, she I, really does seem like a housewife that would yeah. live <laughs> <Yeah>. in Fargo. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, I actually have a better answer for you now. Now that I've had to think about, it. she's she's great, and I think that that was a that was exactly who it should be. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. My answer is actually Carter Burwell, the oh. composer. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. Be- I like because... it. I like it. A, the film was not nominated for best score. So it was it because it has so many nominations, it was clearly well received, including best picture, best director, etc. Okay. So it's not like they didn't notice the score. And to me, that as soon as that sound starts at the beginning of the movie, I know what I'm watching. It's so okay. recognizable and it sets a like a tone that just kind of carries through the entire movie and so for it not to have been nominated for best score and just for the brilliance of carter burwell in general like he's composing almost all of the you know the coen brothers movies uh there's my answer that is a fair answer i do i i do like it i do like it um um you, you know what i was gonna say um the 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 two women that Bashemi and Stormare <laughs> sleep with, because they're only they're in the sex scene, and then they're in the part where Marge is interrogating them. Yep. And you get everything about their characters. Yep. In the scene with Marge, like you, you know, I, and I'm not like shaming anybody. Obviously, you know, I'm you know I'm a sex positive person, but the fact that you know that these are just two women who hang out at bars. And they, you know, get picked up by random guys. Um, and, you know, then they just go have sex with them. But then, like, they're, you know, very, you know, and please, everyone forgive me for this kind of homely looking. You know what I mean? Like, they're not, like, the most attractive women on the face of the planet. But they're very, they're very, like, I, I, yeah, you know, homely looking. Like, you know, just kind of, I hate to say plain, but, you know, not, you know... You know, would you would you consider they're an LA three but a Fargo six? Something like that, yeah, absolutely. Um now I will say later in the second sex scene, Steve Ashemi gets an escort and she is like an LA five, but maybe like a Fargo nine. <laughs> so Fair enough. as as uh as rudimentary and uh <laughs> Of a certain time that that scale system works, sure. Yeah, I'm. I'm just trying to make a point in that those two girls, the actresses, and I don't know who they are because the Wikipedia did not want to at all mention them. So, mm. if you're if the actresses from that movie are listening, go get on Wikipedia and put yourself in there. Um, you, they did a wonderful job, and like, like I said, I got everything I need to know about those two characters in the two minutes that yep. they were with Frances McDormand, uh, and that yeah. says something, yeah, you know, that they that they can do that in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so now we'll go ahead and open this up because you felt like I was interrogating you in a hot seat. So let's open this uh, up. No. <laughs> Uh, what would you like to discuss about Fargo? Like, what points did you have? Like, is there anything I'm not I'm looking over that I didn't go, you know, into detail about? Uh, I like to open it up for the guests to, you know, sure, bring in their. Honestly, like as we were talking, I hit everything on my notes. Like, it was just it was something that kind of came naturally. So that's fun. I literally just threw away my post-it because I oh nice thing that I wanted to that I look at that. Look at but, me. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> Again, um, I, I think that for me, you know, the end makes me tear up every time because, you know, Marge coming home again, seeing Norm and learning about the stamp and telling him that, you know, he's he's doing he's doing good and that yeah. that, that that they're doing pretty good and their love that there is a a hope that kind of exudes from their relationship that doesn't exist outside of that house Mm -hmm. and really within the entire Coen's universe, like all of their movies, but specifically within this one, there's so much darkness and so much evil really that exists that she sees on a daily basis. But then it's like raised exponentially during this small window because of all (laughs) the things Jerry did. Yeah. And, and she sees it all. And 
I think all the moments that she has with Norm throughout the the movie, whether it's just him bringing her lunch or him waking up and making her eggs in the morning, in the morning. <laughs> yeah. or having to go out into the snow because the prowler needs a, you know, a jump. Like mm-hmm. he is her rock, her foundation that like she leans on. He clearly needs her just as much. And that's mm-hmm. why I think not to get to whatever about it, but they're leaning into each other in that mm-hmm. last shot. Right. It's not yeah. just her on his shoulder and that's it. He's leaning into her too. Okay. And I okay. think they're, that kind of cinematic language is that a very visual, you know, the sight of them is that they personify hope to me that even in this very dark world that they've built this like really beautiful relationship and that they're able to kind of continue on and they're going to be great parents and that kid's going to be awesome. And like, you just kind of can see again, that, that wonderfulness that you don't necessarily feel when you leave other Coen brothers movies. And so that to me is kind of, again, I've I've said it a number of times, but that's what makes it really special to me and and why it's one of my, you know, 15 favorite movies ever. (laughs) And I can put it on at you know, anytime. And that's why when you asked me, I was like, Oh man, I have to watch Fargo again. Like, I mean, (laughs) come on, you know, happy to throw it on, you know? All right. I got one final question. Then we can wrap up. Cool. It starts with, this is based on a true story. Yes. Now we know now in 2023 that that's made up. Correct. The very first time, whenever it was when you first watched it, did you believe this was in fact based on a true story? I think I did. I I I don't remember how old I was. I was probably college age when I saw this, so you know, 15 ish years ago, and. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Because a lot of people did. You know, I've, I've read, I don't know if these are urban myths or stories of people who've actually died trying to find the briefcase that, yeah. you know, that, 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 that yeah. puts yeah, out in the yeah, 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 yeah. You know, but <clears throat> I think it's, now I think it's, it's just funny. I think that's part of their joke. I think that's part of their, the way that they, you know, kind of your dark comedy, if you will, you know, mm-hmm, the, the, mm-hmm. them saying that. It also, I think, represents just, uh, these are real people, yeah. In, in a sense, like they these characters exist. These are people who are because so many of their movies have, even if they're wonderful characters, they're kind of caricatures. Yeah, yeah. And like, even if you want to think of like Anton Chigurh, right? Like, I mean, amazing character, but like that's not a real person. That's not a real like that. I mean, he's just evil personified. But like, yeah, that, you know, no one's gonna think that that's based on a true story mm-hmm. everything that mm-hmm. happens in fargo pretty believable you can and, see that actually happening yeah you know i thought that I, was clever of them to do that yeah and you know i think they got a little bit of blowback for it but i think that ultimately it's it, it was worth it because i think it set it set a, a good precedent and they used that in the show as well i believe i was doing seasons. some research for this and okay i'm gonna tell you i've never seen the show uh really? i've not gotten around to yeah i've not just gotten around i Dude, you know how much TV is out <laughs> I know. So I will say um, seasons one and two in particular are brilliant. I think okay, they're, okay. they're they're very, very – and I was super skeptical because I was like, You're, really? We're making Fargo into a show? Like that's what we're doing? But yeah. they, they crush it. Three good, good. Three is a slight step down but still very good. And four I couldn't get into and I never finished. Mm. So I, I don't – Okay. Some say that it, it, it ended up pretty good, but I couldn't get past like the halfway point. But uh, one okay. and two okay. at a minimum, <clears throat> worth your time. I do want to check it out. I just had so much to watch. Yeah, that um, is true. I remember a friend telling me like late 90s, like, yeah, you know that Fargo being based on a true, true story? That's bullshit. That, that they just made that up. I was like, oh, man, they wouldn't do that. Why would the Coen brothers lie to us? No. I remember fighting, fighting, like, verbally. Like, <laughs> like no, they can't, no, they can't just say that. They can't just say something's based on a true story and lie. And then Blair Witch Project happened, and then I, I, had, just, a, I, was, then I had a question everything. Uh, <laughs> okay, um... My God, you were wonderful to talk to about this movie. Thank you. Um, 
thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning, when we off air before we started, that you are no longer doing Rambling Ramblers. True. Um, so let's get into that just for a second. If you want to go ahead and promote yourself and anything you want to plug. Sure. We, I mean, we did about 50 episodes or so over about a year and a half. And my co-host Pete Conway and I, Rambling Ramblers is a great show. I love it. It just, it was something that we, life happens, right? So yeah. the the pitch on the show essentially is it's a blind spot for me. I've never seen the movie. And Pete is a well-versed cinephile and he had seen the movie dozens of times. And so oh. c- coming at these classics <clears throat> from two very different vantage points and kind of working through some categories and having some fun with that. And so we did everything from both Godfather movies, 2001 A Space Odyssey, oh all the way through gremlins and gremlins too so i mean like we really <laughs> nice. we ran the gamut of of different movies had some really good guests and yeah there's 50 like i said 50 or so episodes so essentially if you find it and you've seen the movie you'll you'll have a good time with it if you haven't seen the movie you can watch said movie and then you'd be like me when you uh listen to the episode so that's that's fun too i think but yeah it, it doesn't really exist much anymore <laughs> we We've only recorded once in the last two years, and it, it's always an option, but not something that people were clamoring for. So it kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I am starting my own show here in September, so next month, and that's not a movie podcast. I'll just say that if you follow me at Mr. Justin Gott, that's M R Justin Gott, Gott with two T's. Uh, I'll have more information on it, but it's. Uh, I'm excited. It, it's a very, very different thing. Not movie related, but if yeah, you yeah, yeah. if you enjoy hearing uh, good conversations, honest conversations with interesting people, I think you'll be you'll find it interesting. So, anyway, right. love to love to have people check that out too. But either way, this is I, I love it. Any anytime I get a chance to get in front of a mic, I'll do it. Awesome. All right. Well, Justin, thank you so much for being my guest. You were wonderful. Thank you. That's the bomb, yo. 90 hella rad movies from the 90s is hosted, written, and edited by me, Jason Soto. I can be found on Twitter at Famous Comedian, or you can email me any questions, comments, or concerns to rabbitholepod at gmail.com, spelled R-B-B-T-H-O-L-E-P-O-D. This show is a Rabbit Hole Podcast production. You can find this episode and several other great podcasts over at rabbitholepodcasts.com. You can follow Rabbit Hole Podcast on Twitter at RabbitHP. Also, you can support every Rabbit Hole Podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash rabbitholepods. For three bucks a month, you get early access to episodes and bonus content. Until next time, I'm Jason Soto, and remember, wear sunscreen. Copyright 2023, Rabbit Hole Podcasts, rabbitholepodcasts.com.